Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you are listening from, this is, as ever, Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 99. A quick reminder, our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, is eligible for the Hugo Award this year. If you think she is worthy, and of course you do, please pop over to their site via the link in our show notes and nominate her. Also, we are getting close to our milestone 100th episode. As you may have noticed, this is 99. We've arranged something special for next week, so stay tuned. First things first, however. We'll open this week's episode with David Steffen's short story, Unraveling, read by Jonathan Sharp. David Steffen is a writer, editor and software engineer who edits the zine Diabolical Plots and runs the Submission Grinder, a tool for writers to find markets for their work. He recently published The Long List Anthology, a collection of 21 stories from the 2015 Hugo Awards nomination list. His own stories have been published in many nice places, including Escape Pod, Podcastle, Daily Science Fiction and Starship Sofa. Jonathan Sharp lives and works in a sleepy southern New Mexican town, alongside his exceedingly talented wife, Paige. When he is free from the mountains of organic vegetables under which he works, he plays in front of the microphone in the hope it may one day talk back to him. You can reach him online via the link in our show notes. And now... Unraveling by David Steffen Read by Jonathan Sharp a flash of light distracted Cavendish just as he was placing the last weave of an enchantment on his latest project, a telescope. His hand twitched in surprise, and the ethereal thread that he had been guiding with his fingers snapped, and the whole mess collapsed around the telescope in a useless heap. Two hours of work wasted. More because he'd have to cut away the broken weave before it could begin again. Properly made, the telescope would have allowed him to look at a curved trajectory— handy for scouting around corners. Now, with the jumble of enchantment, it would work as nothing but a kaleidoscope. 
He set the ruined piece of work aside with only a grunt of annoyance. The flash of light had been something far more important, something entirely unexpected. It was the result of a weaving meant to pinpoint the location of another weaver's soul box. For decades, he had been enchanting small bits of metal and planting them under the skin of roaming animals here in Detroit and in every city that he'd visited. Stray dogs and cats, raccoons, migratory birds. By all rights, he should never have received any alarm. It was a makeshift random search grid, a clever trick, but he had expected it to be more for his own idle amusement than for any real use. It would only find unshielded soul boxes. A soul box was the key to a weaver's longevity in a hostile world, rebirthing the weaver in a safe location immediately after dying. A soul box was easily destroyed, and any person could only ever have one. Any weaver skilled enough to make a soul box would know better than to leave their work so easily detected. It smelled like a trap. If it was a trap, it was a tricky one, laid by someone who had figured out his sensing system and was trying to use it against him. He passed from his study to his map room. One full wall of the room was covered in a map of the world. A red light pulsed in Michigan. That's where the alarm had happened, on his own turf, where no other weaver had been known to establish themselves for two hundred years. From the drawer he pulled out smaller maps and found the glowing light there. The address was only a hundred miles away from his own house. A quick internet search found that the address was registered to Hilda Freitag. Of the dozen weavers in the world who could make a soul box, she was the most crafty. No one seemed to know her age, but Cavendish suspected that she was the oldest of them all. She had already been powerful when Cavendish was raised up some six hundred years before. He had died at her hands two dozen times, and he had never once bested her. He had to find out what she was up to. The nearby location implied that the bait was meant for him. There was no way that Freitag would ever leave her soul box unguarded. It was almost certainly not hers, but he wanted to find out more. He would likely die, but if he could ferret out more details about how she operated, he would consider it a fair price. He packed his bag hastily, stuffing a dozen of his choicest tools into a small drawstring pouch. The two small bags swallowed them up without changing its size or weight in the process. Those tools were carefully selected to be those that he felt would be most useful, but nothing that held his trade secrets. He didn't want to leave anything behind that would give her any advantage. Last, he pulled on his fedora, his weaver's hat. Hair from an enemy's head was an ingredient in some of the most effective spells. While he was alive, the hat would adhere to his head drawing in stray hair. In the event of his death, it would burn his hair beyond use. Before he left, he extracted his own soul box from its heavily trapped secret compartment beneath his workshop. A soul box could be made of any container, but his was a cedar box that he had crafted himself. He breathed deeply of the fragrant interior, and he felt the giddy rush of reinvigoration, restoring him once again to his prime condition. Soul boxes were not only the key to rebirth, but to eternal youth. He concealed the box in its hidey hole again and laid each of the traps back in place. It was shielded and protected in a hundred different ways, using every one of the most clever and cruel devices he had devised, many based on his own biometrics, many others based on passwords only he could know. Once the soul box was safely in its hiding place again, he walked a quick perimeter of the house, 
a million-dollar house in a neighborhood where it was merely ordinary. Every trap was in place. He left his Lexus in the garage and instead took his enchanted old rattletrap car to trigger Freitag's trap. The old beater was his business car, built around the rusty chassis of a Studebaker and held together more by threads of enchantment than by the manufacturer's workmanship. He arrived past midnight without obstacle and walked up to the front door of the ordinary house. It was identical to the houses around it, all built from a standard floor plan, all painted white with perfectly manicured lawns. There were no signs of aggressive enchantments on the gate and the lawn, though he was sure he was being watched. This is too easy, Cavendish thought as his pocket knife sliced cleanly through the threads of enchantment twined into the surface of the front doorknob of the suburban house he traced the soulbox's signature to. The trap, if left in place, would have burned his bare hand to char. Even if he had grasped the doorknob blindly, his shielded gloves would have protected him from the worst of it, but there was no reason to test it. Only a fool or a layman would fall for such a simple trap. Freitag could do better. The soul box was in the basement, or it had been when it was activated. He found the basement door, which wasn't even protected, and opened it. Behind it, a seemingly mundane stairwell into a well-lit concrete basement. He couldn't take anything for granted. Cavendish pulled his bag of tools from the pocket in his duster. He pulled a bowling ball from its cavity and sent it bouncing down the stairs. The ball hit each stair solidly, accelerating into them faster than gravity would account for. The stairs did not so much as wobble. They were sturdy enough. With his spritzer bottle, he misted the air as he walked slowly down the stairs. No enchantments all the way down. If there had been anything of a dangerous magnitude, the magicked water would have lit them up like light bulbs. The unfinished basement appeared to be of the mundane variety. Laundry machines in the corner, piles of collected garbage, the furnace a modern brand. No magical weavings over most of the room. There was a web of threads laid over the lid of the washing machine, a fairly elementary weave by the look of it, an explosive mixed with something else he didn't recognize, but there wasn't a great deal of powerful potential in the other threads. His clothes would protect him from the worst of the small explosion. He would still be careful. Certainly there was a nasty surprise somewhere about. He set to work with his knife, cutting away loose threads one by one, careful not to sever ones which were taut with the pressure of others. Though the trap was simple, it was woven with a multitude of threads, and his caution made it slow work. He felt a tickle behind his right ear. A hundred miles away, his own sanctuary was being approached. Someone, at this moment, was standing on his doorstep. At this time of night, it was not a delivery or a solicitor, an ordinary burglar who would meet a messy end. But a new sensation, a tickling at his right temple, made him truly take notice. The intruder was inside the house now, without triggering a single trap. This was no mundane intruder. Freitag or someone hired by her? He paused in his work and extracted a pair of glasses from his bag and put them on. The right lens was clear, but on the left lens he could see the foyer of his home. He caught only a glimpse of the intruder as he strode through the arch into the sitting room. With a blink he switched the viewing point to that room, but again the man had already left into the map room. Cavendish saw the intruder only by the back, but it was a man, of medium build, but wearing the odd combination of a pink cardigan and a black cowboy hat. You look surprised, a woman's voice said, a voice that followed him in his dreams, smoky with a touch of laugh at the edges. 
He turned, surprised to be caught off guard. He'd been so intent on watching that he hadn't heard her on the stairs. Also, she had not a single enchantment on her person. She was daring to face him so naked, without a single weapon. Daring, or just so certain of her still-hidden trap? I'm a bit busy just now, he said, returning his focus to the scene of his house, and she laughed cruelly. <laughs> the intruder had passed into another room already. Freitag laughed as Cavendish blinked the scene from room to room until he found him in the study. The man's back was turned to the ceramic owl from which the scene was viewed, but Cavendish could see the man was at the corner bookshelf making delicate strokes through the air with a pocket knife. He couldn't see the threads of enchantment in the scene. Those could only be viewed with the naked eye, but the man moved like a professional. He knew what he was doing. The man was headed straight for the basement, to the soul box. For the first time that he could remember, Cavendish was in real danger, beyond an inconvenient rebirth. He squeezed his eyes shut, forcefully, in a gesture that should have filled the study with corrosive gases and fire. When he opened his eyes, nothing had happened. He tried again, to no result. You can't stop him, Freitag said. I've shielded this place, so that lines of enchantment can only travel through one way. I would have blocked them entirely, but I wouldn't want to miss your own downfall. He turned to face Freitag. She had left off the glamours from which she usually hid her face. Her eyes had the maturity of long experience, though her face was smooth. Your man will never make it through, he said, keeping the anger from his voice with an effort. He didn't want her to have the satisfaction of knowing she'd baited his temper. No one but me can open that vault. He will die. Are you certain of that? Cavendish said nothing. Back in his home, the intruder finished his slicing motions and now had taken the book from the shelf and held it up in front of his face. There was no sound, but the man's jaw moved and a panel in the wall melted away. The stairway to his workshop and there, the soul box. No one had ever penetrated that far before. How did you do it? He asked her. Turn to the camera, my little duckling, she said. The man in the image stopped and turned. Cavendish gasped, despite himself. The man's face was the same face that Cavendish saw when he looked in the mirror. The man took off his cowboy hat and gave a deep bow. She had made a double of him. Judging by its extent of intrusion, with his memories, such a thing required a hair from his head. Somehow she had gotten that hair. The double would deteriorate within a week of its birth. Already the skin on its face was developing sores and its hair was patchy. In a few days its flesh would melt away until it crumbled to dust. But by that time, Freitag would have his soul box. The double grinned at the camera. What are your terms? he asked. Giving up so easily, she said with a faux pout. I thought you a better man than that. What are your terms? he asked again, keeping his voice level with an effort. There are no terms. You will be whatever I tell you to be. My assassin, my scapegoat, my plaything. Each role when I choose and behaving as I command. There is nothing for you to agree to. I would rather break you. I do enjoy a challenge. The cardigan made sense now, a taunt. I'd rather die, he said. She ran a hand lightly down the line of his chin. 
Isn't it a shame you won't have that option? He could handle pain, but she was right. If she held his soul box, he could not escape her. He would have no power over his own life. May I? he asked, holding up his bag. You may, she said smugly. She believed him cornered. She knew that if he killed her, or if he killed himself, the end result would be no different after the minor inconvenience of a rebirth or two. He pulled a cell phone from his bag. She looked at it, narrowing her eyes, no doubt trying to puzzle out what enchantment it might have. If she suspected his plan, she would never have allowed it. But she felt herself secure, knowing any enchantment could be contained. He removed the glasses and put them back in the bag. He dialed home. The answering machine picked up on the first ring. There was no recording, just a beep. The phone was utterly mundane, unaffected by her shield against outgoing enchantments. Ignis, he said, and his voice sounding through his home at the other end triggered all of his traps at once. He felt tingles all across his body trigger as his house was incinerated from roof to basement in a moment. His workshop and all those enchanted tools he hadn't taken along, gone. His irreplaceable soul box, gone. He could die now. He would die of old age, if nothing else. Freitag's eyes rolled back in her head, and she collapsed in a heap. She must have linked her senses to the double, and the shock of the feedback had knocked her out. Killing Freitag would accomplish nothing, only causing her to rebirth in her own safe house, and doing so here might trigger a trap that would end his life. He had what he needed for such an occasion, and he'd had the foresight to bring it along. Out of his bag, he pulled a day-of-the-week pill container. Each day's pills had a different effect, each based on ordinary drugs but also laced with enchantment, some beneficial and some detrimental. He picked the one for Sunday, the day of rest, and he placed it in her mouth, poured water from his spritzer into her mouth until she swallowed. That pill would keep her in stasis for years to come. She wouldn't be reborn until she died, and this would keep her out of his hair for a good long time. Time to hunt for her soul box and return the favor she had paid him. He set to work cutting away the web that protected the soul box in the washing machine. Whether it was hers or someone else's, it would be worth something. His years were numbered now. He'd better make them count. There's so much to enjoy in David's story. The brisk pacing, the clever, pulpy world-building, and fascinating characters. We hope to have further adventures with Cavendish. Hint, hint, David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Our feature story this week is Showing Fairies for Fun and Profit by Julie Frost. Julie writes every shade of speculative fiction and lives in Utah with her family, which consists of an equal number of guinea pigs and people and a collection of anteaters and Oaxacan carvings, some of which intersect. Her short fiction has appeared in Cosmos, Unlikely Stories, Plasma Frequency, Stupefying Stories and others, and was a finalist at Writers of the Future and the Hidden Prize for Prose. Her first novel, Pack Dynamics, was released at Salt Lake Comic Con 2015 by Wordfire Press and quickly sold out, much to everyone's delight. Her story is read by Amy Robinson, a voice artist with a wide range of vocal styling who can be heard in a wide array of radio announcer spots, audiobook narrations, animated series and even telephone IVR systems. She is a featured player on the Rookery Radio Hour podcast and you can find her online via the links in our show notes. And now, Showing Fairies for Fun and Profit by Julie Frost. I dodged through the picketers into the expo center, dragging a cart loaded with four aquariums and a box of tiny furniture and swearing under my breath. Greg Carson waved to me from across the show floor, and I made my way over to him through the general chaos that always attended the annual Clearfield County Ferry Show. I saved you a spot, Emily, he said. Thanks. I rolled my eyes as I set my aquariums on the table. The fairy rights activists give you any problems? Greg drew himself up to his full six-foot-four-inch height, flexed his considerable arms, and deepened his voice. <laughs> Most of them don't want to mess with me. Then he laughed, white teeth flashing in his dark face. They get a rude awakening when they realize that fairy show people aren't just elderly grannies with bifocals and bonnets. I'm an elderly granny with bifocals who firmly refuses to wear a bonnet, and I grinned back. Some of them are former linebackers who happen to breed very rare and attractive varieties. Do you have anything special for us this year? That would be telling. He squired me toward the door. Need some help getting your fairies out of the van? Oh, thank you. I think I might have entered too many this year. He raised an eyebrow. I saw four aquariums. So you brought eight fairies and no helper? Woman, are you crazy? My kids and my grandkids think so. I sniffed. They'd rather I stayed at home knitting or something instead of gallivanting all over the country. I opened the side door of my minivan, and we started loading clear plastic critter totes with my fairies inside onto my wagon. We used the little totes with their colorful lids for safety and transport. Well, they worry. <sighs> Not enough to offer to help, apparently, I said, slamming the van door shut and heading back toward the expo center. But they have their own lives and their own free the fairies, exploiters. A protester screamed at us. 
Inside the critter totes, my fairies made rude gestures at the fairies' rights activists, and I was less than pleased myself. Don't you screech at me, young man. You have no idea what you're talking about. You'll be sorry when... We shoved past him, shaking our heads. Fanatics, Greg said. He stopped short, and I bumped into him. Then he bowled his way forward with an inarticulate shout. I craned my neck and saw that his aquariums were askew on the table. The curtains he used to keep his fairies hidden until the proper moment had been pulled aside. Who would breach show etiquette that way? Apparently, the two tall strangers standing there, arms crossed and brows knit, would. I felt my stomach plummet. What were they doing here? Greg wasn't intimidated. He marched right up to the fair folk representatives and got right in their faces. Get away from my setup, he snarled. You're disturbing my fairies. Indeed, some of his fairies huddled in the backs of their aquariums while others were preparing for battle, tossing little fireballs from hand to hand. You have enslaved our kin. I would have thought that you, of all people, would be more empathetic to this issue. Oh, dear, I thought, rushing forward to stand beside Greg. The fey folk really shouldn't have said that. Greg is one of the few black men showing on the circuit, and although he's well known, he sometimes still encounters subtle little digs. They look unhappy to you? Greg gestured at his fairies. Their aquariums were palatial, with carpeting, plush pillows, hammocks, and toys. Everyone knows he loves them like they were his own children, and it shows in his results. A gilded cage is yet a cage. One of the fairies flew out of the open top of her aquarium and lobbed a fireball at the fae, catching his hair alight and giving the lie to the statement that the fairies were caged. I gaped. This was the other reason Greg always goes home with a stack of blue ribbons and, more often than not, best in show. His fairy had sky-blue luna moth wings. No one else had even conceived of moth wings. I'd thought I'd had a breakthrough when my last egg clutch had produced a fairy with iridescent purple dragonfly wings. Most other breeders were still concentrating on things like that, or bigger and more elaborate butterfly wings. Greg had gone in a completely different direction. The glaring fairy floated down into a cross-legged sit on a cushion in the aquarium, while the fae slapped furiously at his hair to put the fire out. The truth is, I said, the fairies like us, and this whole thing is a cooperative effort. You and those people outside are sadly misinformed. The fae shot an angry glance toward the door, and Greg got an aha expression. Did one of them contact you about the poor, oppressed little fairies? At the fae's reluctant nod, Greg continued, You can see that none of them is held here against their will. All the aquariums have open tops, and they can leave at any time, but they don't. They like showing off, I said. Look around. Most of the show people bustled about, getting ready and avoiding this particular corner of the room. The fairies, not hidden behind curtains, played or slept or ate at will. Some of them preened or sat still while they were being groomed. This isn't dignified, the other fay protested. Greg rolled his eyes. They're not you. Their standards of dignity are different, and it's hard to be dignified when you're four inches tall. Fine. We will go. But... We are watching. They vanished in a puff of aromatic vapor. <laughs> well, my secret's out. 
So pretty. I was still delighted. May I see? He reached into the aquarium, and the fairy hopped up onto his hand, fanning her wings and pirouetting. Why do the rest of us even bother to show up? I asked. Beautiful. You realize that the committee has to make new categories for you every year. Greg looked a little smug as the fairy flew back into the aquarium. Well, you know, it's not easy. I've been working a long time to get something like this. I nodded and began setting up my own area. Even with five generations a year, progress on new varieties is painfully slow. My own pride and joy, Amethyst, had been a year and a half of mixing and matching and experimenting. The process is complicated by the fact that the fairies are picky and sometimes outright refuse to procreate with the mates we carefully choose for them. That can throw an entire breeding program into a tailspin. Alec Anderson strolled up and clapped Greg on the back. Greg grimaced. "'Nicely done, Greg,' said Alec. "'For a minute there, I thought they were going to give us some problems.' I turned my back on Alec and busied myself getting the rest of my setup ready. Rumor had it that Alec sometimes artificially inseminated his fairies, and even used genetic engineering, which would be grounds for suspension if he ever got caught. No one had proven anything. Yet.' So he was still allowed free reign on the circuit. That didn't mean I had to like him. Artemis knew how to take care of business, Greg said. His tones were clipped. He didn't much enjoy Alec's company either. Just how did you manage those wings? Alec nattered on. He either didn't know or didn't care that Greg didn't want to talk to him. I snorted to myself, as if Greg was going to tell him. Sorry, man. Greg said, not sounding sorry at all. I don't tell my secrets to anyone. You know that. <laughs> You'll take them with you to your grave, eh? Alec clapped him on the back again, and I saw Greg ball a fist briefly out of the corner of my eye before he relaxed. You know, some folks might resort to uh, dishonorable means to get at the knowledge you've got locked up in your head. I spun around at those words, which sounded almost like a threat. Alec's expression was bland, his eyes behind their gold-rimmed spectacles giving nothing away. Anyway, Alec continued, I just wanted to congratulate you on your breakthrough. I'll let you get back to your stuff. He strolled away as nonchalantly as he'd approached, and I felt a sudden urge to wash my hands in carbolic soap. Ugh, Sheila Jenkins said, giving Alec a wide berth before hugging me. She was one of the up-and-coming junior handlers, whom I had taken under my wing a couple of years prior. Am I the only one who wants to smack the snot out of that guy every time I see him? No, dear. All of us do. How are you today? Nervous? This was Sheila's first time showing in regular classes. Now that she was 16, she was deemed barely old enough to compete with the adults. You know how a fly bounces itself against a window pane trying to get out? Sheila took a deep breath and brushed a stray lock of long brown hair behind her ear. Yeah, well, about like that. I eyed her shapeless sweatshirt and faded jeans with disapproval. I hope you're planning on changing your clothes. I like to think I taught you better than to go into the ring dressed like that. Of course, Sheila said, somewhat indignant. What do you take me for? She hefted a gym bag. I just didn't want my nice clothes to get dirty while I set up. 
Who did you bring? Emily and Yarrow. Sheila gestured at her setup, and we turned to look. Emily had giant swallowtail wings and feathery moth antennae, and Sheila had been as surprised as anyone at the combination. However, Emily had given Sheila an excuse to break out of junior handling, and she'd been grooming him for weeks for this show. Yarrow had tiger swallowtail wings and liked to compete in the solo dancing class. Emily's been acting funny today, too. You'll all be fine, I said, waving a hand. Should have seen me in my first adult class. I made my fairy so nervous that he flew up into the rafters and it took three hours to coax him down. But I didn't have as good a rapport with him as you do with Emily and Yarrow. Sheila's eyes widened. She put her hand over her mouth. Excuse me, and darted for the restroom, clutching her gym bag. Greg chuckled. Show jitters. We all had them when we first started. I told her not to eat anything this morning. I tisked and turned to arrange my fairy furniture in the aquariums, but was interrupted again. Hi, Grandma. My 17-year-old grandson stood there, half shamefaced, half defiant, wearing a Free the Fairies t-shirt. Oh, Tommy, I said, how did you get caught up in that ridiculous cause? It's not ridiculous. You guys are exploiting these poor little creatures and making tons of money out of them. It's not right, Grandma. No one who does this is in it for the money. My gaze slid across to Alec, and I corrected myself. No one who's reputable does this for the money. What money? Tell it to my minivan with over a hundred thousand miles on it. My mouth quirked. You've been watching me do this since you were five years old, Tommy. Have you ever seen me mistreat one of my fairies? Well, no, but... I steamrolled over him. Ever seen anyone here mistreat a fairy? You know most of these people. Well, there's that Alec guy. And he's this close to getting kicked off the circuit. You know we all have our pet theories about him, and he's going to get caught one of these days. We police our own, you know. Just because you don't see it happening doesn't mean it's not. It only means that we choose not to air our dirty laundry to outsiders. Examining Tommy shrewdly, I said, It's a girl, isn't it? He looked at the floor, and I knew I had him. I, uh, thought I could get her attention this way, he mumbled. She doesn't even know I exist. Oh, for heaven's sake! Have you tried simply asking her out? His expression was horrified. I couldn't do that. I'm just me, and she's... He glanced around the room in a hunted fashion and stopped briefly on Sheila, who had changed into the business suit she was going to wear into the ring and appeared quite grown up now and flinched away as if the girl had thwacked him on the nose with a newspaper. I almost laughed, but I stopped myself. Tommy looked absolutely miserable. However, the show equivalent of dipping Sheila's pigtails in ink wasn't going to win him any points. First of all, I said briskly, change out of that ludicrous shirt. Any impression you make with it will be less than favorable. Second, comb your hair out of your face and stand up straight. You're a fine young man, Tommy, but be a little more imaginative. I spun him around and shoved him toward a shirt vendor. Just talk to her. You'll be fine. He began to object, but I poked him in the back, and he trudged off with a defeated air to buy more suitable attire. 
I chuckled and went back to arranging the rest of my fairy furniture, then transferred the fairies from the critter totes into their new homes. I was one short. I counted again, and still came up one missing. My knees weakened when I realized which it was. Greg saw me stagger and was right there, his hand under my elbow. Emily? What's wrong? Amethyst. My, my fairy with purple wings. I could hardly believe I was saying it. She's gone. Someone unfolded my chair from its bag, and I sank into it gratefully. Someone else gave me a cup of water, and I fished an aspirin bottle out of my purse and swallowed a pill. After a few moments of deep breathing and purposeful relaxation, my heartbeat slowed to an acceptable rate. It sped up again when Sheila rushed toward us, brandishing a piece of paper. "'I found this on your windshield,' Sheila said, panting slightly. "'What, what does it mean?' She looked at me more closely, having been outside during the hullabaloo. "'Are you all right?' "'Amethyst is missing,' I said, along with her tote. So, someone took her. I read the note. Apparently, whoever left this. I showed it to Greg, and his lips tightened with anger. It was handwritten in block capitals. "'Tell me how you bred a fairy like this, or you'll never see her again.' Send the information to P.O. Box 275 here in town. Do not go to the police. Once I have the information, I'll tell you where to find her. You know, I don't like Alec, but I never thought he'd sink to this level, Greg said, jumping to the same conclusion that I had. Alec had been conspicuously absent from the concerned crowd that had surrounded me after the discovery. I'll be right back. He stomped off in the direction of Alec's setup. A few moments later, he returned, frog-marching Alec, who was complaining loudly. "'Tell the lady what you did with her fairy,' Greg said, dropping him. "'I didn't take her friggin' fairy!' "'Who else would write a note like this?' Greg waved it in front of Alec's face. Alec grabbed it and looked it over while Greg continued. "'Everyone knows you're not above stealing secrets, and if you can't get them by being sneaky, you'll try other means.' I'm glad you have such a high opinion of me, but do you really think I'd be so stupid as to kidnap a high-profile fairy at the biggest show of the season and then leave such a bald-faced note? Alec rolled his eyes. Please, give me credit for some intelligence. Reluctantly, I found myself in agreement. This really wasn't his style. I made a shooing motion with one hand, covering my eyes with the other. Go away, Alec. You're tiresome. Alec twitched his suit back into place and gathered the shreds of his dignity. You're lucky I don't sue you for libel, Carson. He spun on his heel and retreated to his own setup across the room. Libel is written, idiot. I'll keep an eye on him anyway, Greg said. I'm not convinced he didn't have anything to do with it. Tommy rushed up and gave me a hug. Grandma, are you okay? I just heard. He must have been changing in the restroom. I noted with some approval that he now wore a black t-shirt emblazoned with a fairy sporting swallowtail wings. He grabbed a chair, turned it around, and sat on it backwards. "'I'll be fine once we find Amethyst,' I said. "'She must still be around here somewhere.' The show officials had locked the building down. No one could leave without heavy scrutiny. Of course, if Amethyst had been taken out before I'd missed her, that wouldn't accomplish anything.' "'Who'd do something like this?' Tommy asked. "'It's horrible!' His eyes slid towards the doors, where the protesters outside still chanted. 
I picked up on his unease. Have you heard anything from them? Just that it serves you right, and they hope the fairy finds happiness in her freedom. My throat felt as if it wanted to clench shut. Do you think one of them took her and set her loose? She'd die out there on her own. Tommy leapt to his feet. I'll go ask around. You might want to change your shirt again, I said wearily. If Amethyst had been freed, depending on where, I had no hope of ever seeing her again. Fairies are terrible at directions, and cats and birds see them as natural prey. Oh, yeah, he glanced down at the one he was wearing, then at Sheila. Don't worry, Grandma. We'll find her. I couldn't help worrying, but bless his heart. Thank you, Tommy. He sped away. Sheila sat in the chair he'd just vacated. I don't think it was a protester. Have they even been in the building? I shrugged. It's a public place. And just because we don't recognize someone as a protester doesn't mean one wasn't here. They're not all wearing dead obvious t-shirts. Greg glared in Alec's direction. I still think that little weasel has something to do with it. He squinted. What in the world is he doing? I turned my head. Same as the rest of us should be doing, giving his fairies a final spruce-up before they call his class. With a perfume spritzer? Something's not right. If he... A runner came down the aisles, calling, First classes in fifteen minutes! Fifteen minutes, guys! We all fumbled with our schedules to see if we were up. I didn't feel much like showing, but I had seven other fairies to think about, and some of them were close to getting titles. Not going into the ring would be terribly unfair to them. I had one in the bread-by-owner exhibitor novice class, which was for getting young fairies used to the hustle and bustle of the ring. The class was split between the predatory and sometimes cannibalistic dragonfly-winged fairies and their more pacifist butterfly-winged cousins in case of accidents. Greg would go up against Alec and several others in the monarch-wing adult class. Sheila was free until the afternoon and volunteered to stay and watch over our setup so nothing further happened. I specialize in dragonfly wings. This particular fairy had green hair and wings, and I'd named her Jade. Jade hovered in her tote, a sure sign of nervousness, and I tried my best to soothe her with little success. <sighs> she must be picking up on my own state of mind, I thought. Several people commiserated with me over the loss of amethyst, which didn't actually help. I just took deep breaths and told myself to concentrate before my turn came to put Jade through her paces. This calmed her only a little, and she clung to me, barely showing her exquisitely veined wings. We garnered a white ribbon for the class, which was disappointing, but I gave Jade a piece of sausage anyway, as she'd done her best under trying circumstances. A commotion by Greg's ring arrested my attention as I headed back to my setup, and I craned my neck to look. Several fairies were airborne over there, which was far from normal, and a couple were even lobbing fireballs back and forth. Zeus, Greg's fairy, sat on his shoulder, watching the shenanigans with his arms crossed and an uncharacteristic frown on his pixie face. I figured I'd find out what happened when Greg was done, so I walked to my table. Kissing the top of Jade's head, I sent her flitting into the aquarium. "'Any trouble?' I asked Sheila. Sheila shook her head. No, nothing. I don't— She was interrupted by Tommy running up breathlessly. He skidded to a stop, holding an empty critter tote. I, I found this in the bushes at the far end of the parking lot. 
I wondered if my heart could take much more of this. It's amethysts. I sat abruptly in the chair. That's it, then. Someone took her outside and turned her loose. I'll never see her again. Greg stomped up, carrying a blue ribbon, his expression furious. I automatically congratulated him for his win. No thanks to Alec, he growled, giving Zeus another strawberry. What did he do? I saw the commotion. Nothing anyone saw, but he sure enough did something. Greg tossed the ribbon onto the table, and Zeus flew into his aquarium. Alex was the only fairy who wasn't half-crazed over there, other than Zeus, of course, who's experienced enough that ring chaos doesn't bother him. He noticed Amethyst's critter tote. Emily? Tommy found it outside. My voice broke, and I fumbled in my purse for a tissue. Greg gently squeezed my shoulder as I dabbed my eyes. I'll do the usual things, but you know what the chances are. I'm so sorry. I'll go look for her, Grandma, Tommy said stoutly. She can't have gone far, right? He set off at a brisk walk toward the door. I'll find her. I will, he said over his shoulder and disappeared into the crowd. Sheila had a speculative expression on her face. He's kind of nice, she said. She shook herself, glanced at her watch, and shifted from foot to foot. Oh, I'm almost late for Yarrow's class. Go, dear, I said. My difficulty shouldn't stop you from enjoying yourself. Are you sure? I can drop out. Don't be ridiculous. Go. If there's anything I can do, you can win your class and make me proud. I gave her a little push. I have classes to get ready for myself, you know. Okay. Sheila half ran to her own table across the room, looking troubled. My next class was a precision aerobatics competition, one I'd been training Ruby for months to compete in. Ruby had red-tipped wings, and I snapped my fingers and tossed her a piece of sausage. She did a half-roll and loop through the air, catching the meat on her stomach. Show off, I said fondly. She wiggled like a puppy and settled on my shoulder for the walk to the ring. Alec had a fairy in this class as well, and he was first. His fairy bobbled a few maneuvers, ending with 85 points out of a possible 100, which was a non-qualifying score. His expression was furious. He sent the little creature into her tote with a brusque wave of his hand. No one would dare shout at a fairy at a show, but I could tell that he really wanted to. I studied the course outline sheet I'd been given with my packet. The courses are a secret until the morning of the show. I had confidence in Ruby, however, and refused to be intimidated by the double eight-point spin loop. I shoved Amethyst to the back of my mind and concentrated on my current class. Ruby was the fourth fairy up, but I was surprised that no one ahead of us had a qualifying score. These competitors were usually in the top echelon, all hugely respected, but every single one of them made major mistakes. Puzzled, I gave Ruby one final piece of sausage and sent her off. Fairy aerobatics is a complex contest that tests the link between fairy and trainer. Not only does the fairy have to perform the maneuvers consistently and precisely, but she also has to pay attention to her handler to find out what the next maneuver is. The entire performance is something of an aerial ballet, and it's always been one of my favorite parts of a show. Ruby performed beautifully until her last pass when she pulled up into a hover sniffing the air. I gave her the signal for a split S-turn, but Ruby was completely distracted, turning her head this way and that. 
She focused on Alec and flitted over to him, then buzzed around the tote his fairy was in before landing on it and pulling at the door in the lid. "'Go away!' Alec said between clenched teeth. "'Get out!' "'Ruby!' I was scandalized. "'I'm sorry,' I said to the judges. "'She's never done this before.' "'Ruby! Sausage!' Ruby ignored me. Ruby, big sausage! That finally got her attention, and she flew to me and landed on my shoulder. I had a dawning, horrible suspicion. Alec, what have you done to your fairy? Done to her? Uh, Alec sputtered. I, I don't know what... I think you do. I crossed my arms. Just what have you been spritzing them with all day? Spritzing? but the innocent look wasn't working, and the rest of the competitors eyed him mistrustfully. Don't think we didn't see you. What is it? You can't prove... Oh, I think we can. Pheromones. I drummed my fingers on my biceps. Know how I know? Because Ruby wasn't affected until the end of the routine, when the smell from the sausage I gave her before she started wore off. I wouldn't... You did and denying it now only makes you look more venal than you actually are. I shook my head. I think this will finally be enough to get you suspended, Alec. What a shame. Alec packed up and slunk out the door, with the rest of the show abuzz with what he'd done. Sending a fairy soaked in pheromones into a show ring will disrupt every other fairy in the class, an offense guaranteed to get anyone caught doing it expelled for at least five years. He could still breed, but none of the progeny would be registered by the governing body. A year suspension is the practical equivalent of a lifetime ban, unless a person wants to start over from scratch once the suspension is lifted. And good riddance, said Greg when I told him what Alec had done. I knew he was up to something. We all did. It's one thing to use questionable methods in your breeding stock. It's quite another to try to handicap your competitors in the ring. Well, at least we know for sure that he didn't take Amethyst. Alec had been searched quite thoroughly before being allowed to leave. There is that. I checked my watch. I've got another class coming up, and then I should go watch Sheila and Yarrow. The solo dance class was huge. Sheila needed to be ringside for it, but her turn wouldn't be for a while. Good luck. Grabbing Sapphire, still worried about Amethyst, I headed over to the ring for the fireball competition. Targets were set up at various distances, and the fireballs were judged on speed, accuracy, and intensity. Sapphire disdains the beauty contest aspects of showing, but he loves this class. Ring stewards stood around with fire extinguishers in case of accidents. Sapphire, however, was his usual enthusiastically perfect self. He garnered the blue and his FCX three title, and I gave him a gobbet of sausage nearly as big as he was as a reward. He sat on my shoulder, munching it, while I found a seat next to the ring where Sheila's class was. Yarrow, I saw, was acting strangely. Sheila's fairy usually enjoyed this class, but I wondered if the girl's case of the jitters was having an effect on Yarrow, too. The fairy kept looking toward her table, and Sheila had to speak sharply to her to get her to pay attention. Yarrow's distraction hurt her dance routine, and they ended up with a non-qualifying score and no ribbon. Sheila was nearly in tears when I met her at the ring entrance and gave her a hug. "'It's not the end of the world, dear,' I said. Yarrow made a beeline for their setup, not waiting for Sheila, and dove under the cloth covering their table. Tommy chose that moment to walk up to them. "'I talked to some of the activists,' he said, "'and, and they told me—' 
Oh, what did they know? Sheila snapped. He lifted a cool eyebrow, and I noticed that he wasn't as shy around Sheila as before. This, it seemed, was a day for outlandish behavior. They have eyes, he said mildly, going with us to Sheila's table. And some of them saw you dump the tote and put the note on Grandma's windshield. So you might as well fess up. He lifted the tablecloth. Sheila screamed. I was both pleased and aghast. Pleased because Amethyst was sitting complacently in a critter tote, picking her teeth with... Well, that's why I was aghast. Amethyst! Yarrow was beating on the side of the tote with her tiny fist. Amethyst smiled at her in a toothy fashion, and she back-winged frantically and popped back into her own aquarium. Sheila! What did you do? I demanded. Sheila sat in a chair and buried her face in her hands. I should have known that nothing would go right today. She sobbed. Oh, Emily. I pulled the critter toad out from under the table and opened it. Amethyst flew out and landed on my shoulder with a loud burp. What was left of Emily lay in a sad little heap of swallowtail wings, feathery antennae, and scraps of bright cloth. You know why we don't put the dragonfly-winged fairies together with the butterfly-winged ones. Most of us don't even breed both. It's one or the other. What in the world were you thinking? Emily was in love with Amethyst, Sheila said into her hands. I had to do something. He was moping around, losing his appetite, drooping. Well, he's done drooping now. I shook my head. Amethyst has a remarkable amount of self-control, but you put her in an intolerable situation. You ridiculous girl. Why didn't you say something? Greg had noticed the drama, and he strode over to see what was happening. His face broke into a grin when he saw Amethyst. Hey, great! You found her! Um, what's wrong? Sheila was the one who took her, Tommy said. I waved at the critter tote and locked her in with Emily, whom she promptly ate. Well, yes. Greg gave Sheila a look of mingled disbelief and horror. What were you thinking? Sheila wailed. I thought love conquered all. Star-crossed fairies. It was Tommy's turn to stare at her. You know that Romeo and Juliet both died at the end, right? Or were you absent that day? All right, all right. I felt as if they were piling on. The poor girl had just lost her favorite fairy, after all, even if it was her own fault. I hope you've learned your lesson, Sheila. I have. <laughs> Love bites. No one was more surprised than I when Amethyst laid four eggs a week later. Sheila almost disappeared, holing up in her house after school and refusing to socialize. The show officials had taken a dim view of her actions, but I told them that she'd been punished enough with the loss of her fairy, so they only suspended her for the duration of that show. This didn't make her feel any better. I managed to coax her out of her shell by promising her a baby, as long as she wouldn't do anything so foolish as kidnapping a fairy ever again. Even Tommy's attitude softened toward her. He still thought she was, as he put it privately, less than brainy. But now that the crisis was over, he wanted to at least be friends. 
Greg, Tommy, Sheila, and I gathered around an aquarium at my house. Amethyst's eggs were due to hatch, so we all settled in with snacks and soda. One of the eggs rocked, cracked, and burst apart. An inch-tall baby stretched to its full height. I held my breath. The wings were still crumpled from the shell and would take a few minutes to fill out. In the meantime, the other three eggs hatched as well. The babies fanned their wings, flapping them gently. Oh, oh my! I covered my mouth, transfixed. Tommy and Sheila grasped hands, their differences, if not forgotten, backburnered for the moment. The wings were formed like a dragonfly's, although a little broader than normal, with a swallow tail at the base of the lower pairs. But the pattern on them was the same as Emily's, only in a rich, iridescent purple with deep black veins and edges, with a yellow stripe running through the center. Looks like I'll have some serious competition in the next show. Greg grinned. It's about time. And we thought dog shows and beauty pageants were cutthroat competitions. At least those contestants don't literally devour one another. That we're aware of, of course. Please remember, everybody, that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be fed to the Bixies. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. Be sure to be here next week for our hundredth episode and that very special story. I'm off to go and make myself that famous beverage. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.